Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Mike Prendergast, founder and head instructor of the Historical Combat Academy in Dublin and translator of Pietro Monte's Exercitiorum Atque Artis Militaris Collectinea, which is otherwise known as the Collection of Renaissance Military Arts and Exercises. And anyone who wants to mock my Latin pronunciation is free to do so. So without further ado, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Guy. Great to be here. It's nice to see you again. It's been ages. So whereabouts in the world are you? Okay, so I live in nice rural North County, Dublin. Um, I do most of my historical fencing stuff in Dublin City, where I teach with the Historical Combat Academy, where we focus on the art of Pietro Monte, who you mentioned. And mm-hmm. I also teach in a, an SCA, or Society of Creative Anachronism, group called Dunanvara. So I tend to attend rapier, do rapier and fury with the SCA currently, and I tend to do Monte's poleaxe, two-handed sword, and his full system with the Historical Combat Academy. Okay, so the Dublin area is a hotbed of historical martial arts then? Well, not so bad. Um, I count about five HEMA historical fencing groups here. There's three of us in the HEMA Ireland fold, um, and there's a guy called Nathan Gray who does Spanish under Ton Puri system. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's a friend of mine, Nathan Gray, who's got current martial arts and they're teaching Irish stick fighting. Um, as recreated. So there's a, quite a variety from like German longsword, Italian systems. So yeah, it's a good place to be for historical fencing. Excellent. And there's an awful lot of people who want to go to Ireland just because it's this sort of magical place with like fairies and things. I won't so. disillusion you. Come. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've been to Ireland a couple of times and uh, the time before last, I actually did a seminar for you in Dublin. So um, that was that was super fun. Um, so, I'm, we've known each other for quite a long time, and we'll probably get into how we met. Um, but because I remember you coming to Finland for an SCA event, like must have been fifteen years ago, something like that. At and, least, yeah, yeah. And you had the, the the wit to come to my school and get some classes from me while you were there, because you know you might as well. Um, but obviously, you've been training for a while already by that point. So how did you get started? Um, so my very first understanding of something like historical combat existed was probably around 94, 95. I, I went to my first SCA activity. So the SCA is an international historical recreation group. There's, yep. It's quite large. It's mainly US-based, but there's, U, um, there's European, Australian groups, etc. But I went to a, a one-day armored combat seminar, and SCA armored combat is often full steel harness. I got to wear a full steel harness for my first time. We're fighting with rattan tournament clubs, so it's very full contact. It's it's real full contact, unlike a lot of what people describe as full contact. Not as right. quite as nuts as Bohart, but but it was intense. <laughs> um, oh, guys, it, interject. And, and pe- people who want to know more about Bohart and more about the SCA, I've had. Stephen Mulbo, one of the who's been in the SCA for over fifty years on the show, and we've had a couple of Boho people, um, Dana Bergen Wyman's, I may be getting the exact name wrong, and uh, Beth Hammer. 
So I'll put links in the show notes to those episodes so that we don't need to go into long details as to what exactly Boho is and what okay. exactly the SCA is. We've covered so, that already on this show. So Carry having on. a day of fighting, being an armor, doing a mini tournament, yeah. I, I heard this random comment by the trainer who is a guy in the SCA called Duke Garrick, who is a legendary mm-hmm. fighter who's been in lots of different areas. And he just mentioned that sometimes he fights in a period style. And I kind of did a mental double take and went, how is that even possible? How do we know how they fought? You know, we have books, we see movies, but do we really know this exists? Um, and I didn't even get to pursue it with him. So I, but it's planted a seed. And I was, I was in college, I was studying architecture. I had no time and no money. So this was a once-off experience. It was really cool. I planned to come back to it. So when I graduated from college, got back to the SCA and was very into armored combat, but it was easy to get into fencing as a side thing because you could wear a mask, you could pick up a sword, didn't need all the gear. And I gradually kind of got into SCA fencing. Okay, so I, I, after having that first experience and that kind of SCA combat fighting in full steel harness, horrifically uncomfortable, didn't fit me, was the only gear, but it was, it was interesting, it was fun. Fast forward to, I think, May 1999, I went to my first sort of event in the UK, which was a Collegium of Defence. It was an SCA fencing get-together. Um, and that day I had, I had classes from Bill Wilson of Tattershall School of Defence and Gary oh, Jenner, really? as well was there. I know, so Bill, I know them both, yeah. Yeah, I remember talking to Gary. He'd been he'd given a seminar in your school in Helsinki later on, but um, Bill was teaching Distretta, um, uh with Gary's aid. Um, there was also classes by Stefan Dika, who went on to found Alte Kunst in Germany. Uh, he mm-hmm. was teaching Meyer. He was one of the first people to translate Meyer. He's doing Meyer's rapier. Um, there was another U.S. lady whose name eludes me who was doing Degrassi. So, mm-hmm. like in this one day in a churchyard in rural East Anglia. Uh, I had this like amazing introduction to actual historical fencing, and um, wow, back, where was it? Where where was uh, it? It was somewhere. I think it might be a place called Spaldwick. Um, okay, because I'm, I'm in East Anglia, and nothing like that happens these days. <laughs> but that's well, epic. It was it was amazing. It was an immersion. Um, so that kind yeah. of set me on the path to find out more as much as possible about historical fencing, um, as opposed to. A lot of SEA fencing at the time was sort of like competitive fencing in the way that like boxing mm-hmm. is competitive, but you're not trying to, you know, recreate Victorian pugilism. You're going out and fighting, which is good for, yeah. it's fun, but it's kind of, it missed something for me. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, Stefan Dijk is also, you know, he set up as a professional fairly recent, uh, actually quite a long time ago now, God, maybe 2005, something like that. I but I remember I him from the very early days. I mean, we've uh-huh. been friends a really long time. Um, and yeah, Gary was teaching seminars for me in Helsinki in, I think it must have been 2006. Mm-hmm. Around that time, Gary, 2006. So yeah. Gary was one of the early pioneers in Giganti. So mm-hmm. he was kind enough to share his work in progress translation with me, maybe around 06. So I got a, I got a head start in Giganti and he became like my favorite rapier source. Ah, well, I mean, if you just want to learn how to fence with rapiers, Giganti is the place to go. But I have to show you something. Okay, this is useless for the listeners. Listeners, I apologize. But this arrived this week and Mike is Uh one of those people who will appreciate it. Cool. This, sir, is Hmm. an original 1610 Grand Simulacro. Oh, my God. 
Yes. God. Yes, That'll baby. Be There'll be photos in the show notes, but I'm actually literally holding up no, a 412 year old copy of Capoferro's Fencing that Book. That is right. beautiful. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Awesome. Awesome. Isn't that glorious? I can prefer it's just the best illustration series. Just yeah. So, like, it gives you now, the text, it gives you the, the visuals. I have a Fabris already. Mm-hmm. I now have a Capoferro. And when I've sold probably, I don't know, both my kidneys and my liver, I might, and a, and a Gigante comes on the market. Mm-hmm. That's next, next on my list. So. So that, that, that is that is undeniably epic, guy. <laughs> I thought you'd be, I thought you'd like that. Well, come to the house and you can you can you know sit and have a have a read. I will try not um, to drool. No, no drooling on the books. Right. Okay, we'll, we'll give you a napkin. Don't worry. Um, okay, so yeah, so you're talking about Gigante. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary, shall I introduce you to it? So you, you've been into Gigante for a while now. Quite a while. In fact, it was Bill Wilson introduced it to me. It was um, it was uh, an SCA event in Lincoln Castle in the deeps of time where, again, we had, I think we had Bill Wilson over as a guest teacher for a two-day event. And mm-hmm. he went to Capoferro, Giganti, and so forth. And it was, he described, you know, Fabris as very kind of erudite, academic, and very rich fencing. Um, Capoferro is kind of sal fencing, and Giganti is street fighting. And um, I kind of like that vibe. Now, I sense some alternative opinions here. Well, Fabris is a totally complete and very thorough theoretical and physical, practical and mm-hmm. academic exposition of the art of fencing as it was in the early 17th century. No question. Agreed. Capoferro. He calls it the great representation of the art and use or art and practice of fencing, right? So mm-hmm. it has the theory and it has the practice. And the practice is very clearly not sal play. Because if you do half of those techniques at the measure prescribed with your friends, you're going to be breaking ribs and collarbones and really hurting each other, even with blunt swords. He right? does have quite a lot of blood spurting in his illustrations. He right? does. And Giganti actually calls himself the school or teatro, which is like area in which a thing is done, of fencing. I mean, so if anyone is going to be sal play, I would have to say, I don't think Giganti is sal play. But if any one of those three was to be described as sal play, I think it would have to be Giganti because he calls it sal play himself. Well, I think it's fair that Giganti's First book is very sal play. It's well, it's very kind of formal. Doesn't really get into the cuts and other less untidy techniques so much. Right. Um, but I do find there's a there's a beautiful directness in Giganti's book. There's so much and so little in his plays and the, and his yeah. his feints and his his systems, his invitations. That it is maybe hard to it would be hard to start with as a complete beginner without some background and kind of more subtleties of gaining the blade and movement and measure because he runs through that very quickly but i think as a condensed explanation of the art of fencing with a rapier it's amazing okay we also have slightly different pedagogical approaches then because i would say beginners are better off with giganti because it doesn't go into all that detail it just gets you doing stuff simple things quite early right and it's very straightforward um, i think beginners with a teacher 
are great with Gandhi. I, I I remember I remember puzzling over some stuff myself when I was looking at the book because I, I feel oh okay yeah from a research perspective perhaps right. if you have to figure out what everything means then yeah maybe. yes well I think as a system as it's it is basically a curriculum I think it works mm. really well as That's a what curriculum. Says. Yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um and um, yeah it's it's funny it's one of those things I I'm a Capoeira man by accident because mm-hmm. um. I was getting into historical rapier of like proper research and what have you in about 2002. Mm-hmm. And in 2003, I took a Capoeira class with Sean Hayes, which it was just like, it just unlocked the thing for me. I mean, he didn't go into that much of the thing. And obviously it's, that interpretation is now 19 years old. It's, it's, it's no longer how we think it's all done exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just like, oh, okay. And at the same time, Bill Wilson, bless his name, um, produced that translation, because my Italian wasn't that good back then, produced that translation of Capoeira that was free, right? And so with that, with Bill's translation and with the kind of the impetus of Sean's class, I got deep into Capoeira and I've basically never left. Awesome. And only after that did I sort of get into Fabris and Giganti and what have you. But my core base is Capoeira and probably always will be from a rapier perspective. Not because mm-hmm. it's the best book, but because it's the book I fell into first. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's it's history plus, you know, accident sometimes what leads us on yeah. the path. <laughs> exactly. Um, so... I mean, I, I really like Giganti. Obviously, you, you've read the second book. The mm, way, love the second book. It's such, it, it, it expands so much. <laughs> yeah, but I, what I tell you, what I really want though, what I really, really want. Tell me what you want. What you really, really want. I'm going to tell you what I want. What I really, really want. And it's not where you think I'm going with the Spice Girls. It's no. I want a proper facsimile of the 1608 because we only have uh, Pierre Marco Tomio's translation, mm-hmm. which is good. It's great. It's pretty accurate. I have. A couple of, you know, a couple, some places where I would translate. It. I mean, I went to the Wallace collection and I got the sixteen oh eight in front of me, and I Brilliant. and I went through the translation and I checked it against the original, and I um, did other things I'm not going to talk about on the on the internet because it's not strictly what I was supposed to have been doing there. Um, but <laughs> but put it this way, put it this way, I can I can check a translation at any time now if I want to. Uh, okay, <laughs> but I can't say how that's possible because <laughs> right, it's your eidetic memory. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yes, eidetic memory. Yes, exactly. Um, is it that um, small? Is it as it is as small as the yeah as the book? Yeah, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's the um yeah. This this is this this is the I got the fancy leather bound lot. Oh, nice. Over. Um. Yeah, Pierre Marketing and Joshua Pedraga. Yeah, the, the, the translation is produced in the same format and about the same size as the, um, cool. as the original. It's a so nice the, touch, though. Yeah, although the images are just appallingly crap. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the images, yeah the images in, quite, in, they're quite nice in the first book in comparison. Yeah, you get the feeling that the first book didn't do so well financially and so he couldn't quite afford to pay for a decent engraver for the second book. 
I also wonder if it's something to do with where he was based, because the first book he was in Venice, and then I guess he moved to wherever the uh, Crusading Order of Santo Stefano was based. So it could have been a little more away from the center of art and book production, perhaps. Yeah, but people communicated back then. Mm-hmm. It was slower, but they did it. And so he could easily have got the the illustrations done somewhere else. Uh, I, I, I can't remember exactly where it was but, but yeah that second book my favourite bit in the whole book is if you have a dagger mm-hmm. and you're attacked by somebody with a lance or a spear uh-huh. <laughs> right and you're supposed to look like you're really afraid because that's going to be really hard to do right someone's going to murder you with a spear right? yeah you look like you're going to be afraid to encourage them to overcommit, and then you parry it out the way and charge in and it's like right. Right. oh that is that is so um that's, that's wishful thinking on the page right there, I think. <laughs> I guess it's his best option for a bad situation. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, no one would expect necessarily to survive that. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely okay, not so, <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, now we've had this lovely detour into Giganti. Um, let's just wiggle back a little bit to... You founded the Historical Combat Academy in Dublin. Right, um, about 2013 or so, yeah. Okay. Let me just sort of preface my question with some context so you get what I'm getting at. (laughs) One of the most common problems my students in the world come to me with is they don't have training partners. And my usual response is, well, start a club. (laughs) And that seems to be this really um, difficult thing in people's heads. I mean, I've started several clubs and a professional school and it's, it's... actually not that hard really um if you're willing to put some time into it but i started um i I co-founded the dawn dealer society many moons ago precisely so that paul and i could have people to fight (laughs) that's the whole point of it right and so the context of my question is um basically what led you to found the club and how did you go about it? And basically what I'm, what I'm looking for is some, some sort of practical encouragement for those people listening who are thinking, I don't have anyone to play with and I don't want to start a club. So go on, Mike, make it look easy. So I think, I think you're kind of hit the nail on the head there, Guy. I think the main impediment for people starting a club or a group or a sparring group or whatever, a study group, is how they think about it. I think there's often yeah. the perception that if you're leading a group, you have to position yourself as an expert, the master who knows all things, and there's a lot of like people don't feel that's them. Well, I think if you you know if you've got a lot of experience like yourself and you're running a professional school, then you do need to show some credentials. If you want to find people to play with and study with, there's different ways of positioning that. You can set it as a club, you can set it particularly a study group is a great way of mm-hmm. going. If you get two or three like-minded friends at a place you can meet regularly, say once a week, you can easily start a group. You can go to a source. You can look at videos. Um, I think a great piece of advice for anyone interested in potentially setting up a group is, first of all, to either visit another group, which can be expensive and sometimes time-consuming, or often better, invite somebody you respect or you think might be in line with your thinking to come and do a seminar for you, to come and train with you. Um, now, you probably need 10 or 12 people maybe to support the seminar venue or whatever, at least. But if you can get someone to visit, like in Ireland, we have, say, a National HEMA Federation, HEMA Ireland, and we 
one of the things we do is we act as a sort of a starting point for people who want to find out more. So you want to come to email and you drop a mail to us. We'll go, hey, well, you're in Cork. We've got Andre Rizeski in Cork Blade Masters. You can talk to him. Um, we've had people in Limerick, for instance, that you know, people from Cork have went over to do train with occasionally. So I think reach out. I think reach out on HEMA groups. Facebook is good for this. Um, it's quite interactive. Um, find people. Look at YouTube videos. Um, don't try and learn martial arts from a book completely. But I think just feel that you can work with people. And as long as you're not positioning yourself as an expert instantly, you can work on that. Even when, when I set up the Historical Combat Academy, I had been doing historical martial arts, like European historical martial arts, for, um, I guess, about 12 years. I felt I knew That's what I was doing. I felt yeah. I knew what I was doing, but I still, my experience was in Giganti and Fiori, and some Angelino predominantly. So I had an Italian base, a bit of Vadi, a little bit of Vadi. Um, but I was beginning to interpret Monty, and I needed this group because I needed to figure out my interpretation of Monty's Collectinea, because I'd started working on it with Ingrid Sperber in late 2013, and I figured, well, I need to do this. Also, I'd been having discussions with people about setting up HEMA Ireland. I was a founder member of the National HEMA Federation. It's kind of like, well, I've mostly been teaching with the SEA. I kind of do need to have a HEMA club to be involved in this, kind of as a side right. note. Um, or historical fencing is the word I tend to use. HEMA is a term that's out there a lot. I kind of I hate that term. <laughs> oh, it's a horrible, horrible term. I think it's best left as, as the name of a Scandinavian um, – department store type thing which is called HEMA ah yeah yeah you see it in the Netherlands a lot right yeah um anyway um but, so but so how did you start yeah. the club yeah so I started the club I just kind of let people know I was doing and I kind of had a base of people I knew who were interested in historical fencing because I was um I, I I knew people I think the Dublin HEMA club was starting up at the same time I knew people who had been training with me in the SCA. So I kind of let people know what I was up to. And because I had a base of people who were already interested, it was easier for me in many ways to get people to come along. I think the people who started training with me had already been training with me in the SCA to some degree. Um, but we started just going through the book because we'd done a first draft translation, myself and Ingrid. Um, but, you know, trying to puzzle out the Latin, especially when you're getting into wrestling, who does what to whom, when, is quite difficult. So, so we started... So let me just, just clarify. Kind of yeah. Yeah. So you know your Fiori stuff, you know your Gigante stuff and what have you, but you started right. your club because you were you were basically starting from scratch with 100%. a source that you wanted to work from. And right. so you started effectively a study group to study Monte, and that is the thing that is the Historical Combat Academy in Dublin. Exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. And this is this is fantastic because that's pretty much well with leaving aside the having a background in historical martial arts, that's where an awful lot of people are. You know, they want to do Fiori, for instance, but they don't have a club and they want to start one. And so basically, this is perfect. Please carry on. Right. And I'll just say as well, you know, when we started, we had maybe five or six people, maybe sometimes three or four. We just mm -hmm. found a really cheap, like, up, upstairs room in a primary school that was available on a, on a Thursday night and we and we used it. So it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of it is... I think the main challenge in many ways, once you get over the mental challenge of how do we do this, is the practicalities of getting a good venue. At least in Ireland, and I think UK and maybe some other areas, it's always not always so affordable if you're in an urban centre. So just get a venue, 
if you regularly show up once a week, even if there's only two or three people come, if it's a reliable thing, you will build and people will know it's a thing and they will come as long as it, there's consistency there, I feel. It's a bit like having a podcast. Mm-hmm. Doing two or three episodes every now and then doesn't really help. But if you do an episode a week, every week, after about three, four, six, ten months, people start to notice and they start to show up. Right. That's been my experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your Monte thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Most people listening have probably heard the name, but probably don't really know anything about it. So who was he? Why should we care? Just looking at my bookshelf here. So I first heard about Monty back in 2001 when Sidney Anglo brought out his book on Renaissance martial arts. Um, yes. Most people haven't heard of Monty. Um, but Monty was, is, is quite significant. I mean, I think you look at a lot of the history of various people we use as sources in our, in our fencing. Um, some of them are, no one's heard of them historically. Some of them are, have, have, are famous amongst practitioners. I think you can say that Lichtenauer was really well taught of because it's the Society of Lichtenauer that proclamated yeah. his work for you know, centuries afterwards. Fiori's got great bragging rights with his student. Was it Galazio de Mantua who defeated Busico? Galazio himself? de Mantua, yeah. yeah defeated I mean, him twice. 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 Defeated him. I mean, yes. Busico's like yes. the, the officially the greatest knight in Europe at the time, and he was beaten yeah. by Fiori's student. I mean, how, there's no better bragging rights, right? Twice. That's probably why the main street in his hometown is named after him. That's kind of cool. <laughs> That's kind of cool. And there's a street in Udine named after him, too. <laughs> so. But Monty is a person who was actually quite famous in his day, and he's mentioned in some significant sources. For instance, you'll be familiar with Castiglione, the book of the courtier, which is... um, So so Castiglione is talking about Monty's... um, It's set sort of in Milan in the Cortes Sforzes, even though it was published quite a bit later. And they, they talk about the essentials for a noble, and obviously one of the most essential thing to be a noble is to pursue the art of arms. And he talk about legendary fighters and and how to how to get grace. And they, they talk particularly about someone called um, uh, Galazio San Severino, who's an Italian French condottiere who serves. I think he commands the cavalry for the Duke of Milan. But there's this quote from Castiglione about how the physical how how Galazio San Severino gained his physical grace and agility. He says he performs so well in this respect. Because in addition to his natural aptitude, he has made every endeavor to learn from good teachers and to keep company with outstanding men, taking from each of them the best he can give. Thus, as for wrestling, vaulting, and the handling of various kinds of weapons, he has taken as his guide our Pietro Monte, who, as you know, is, get this, is the sole and unchallenged master in regard to every kind of trained strength and agility. So that's that's wow. a hard recommendation from the unchallenged master of all kinds of strength and agility. That is, that that is quite a recommendation. Okay, that yeah. that is that is an amazing recommendation. So Monty is somebody who's he's mentioned by uh, Pietro Bembo later on, as well as and and other sort of la, um, Italian historians in later decades as being a really significant figure. Um, just, just to just to orient people, um, when was Monte active? So what um, are we talking about? He was active from about fourteen. I'm trying to think. 
but 1480, I think he was born in, I, I, I'm, I'm confusing two dates now, so bear with me a moment. I know that he was um, he, somewhere about, I think 1487, he was active in, as a captain in the Italian wars. He was born, I think, 1457. Um, so he was active from the age 21. I think age 21, he was actually a captain of 200 soldiers in a in a minor conflict wow. in northern Italy. Um, he was born in Milan, apparently. Um, the period of his fame um, probably grows from about 1492 when he came to join the court of the Sforzas in Milan. And he was serving this San Severino, who was a famous war leader. And he goes on to work for, like, he fights for the Genoese, he fights for the Venetians, um, he fights for the Milanese, he spent some time in Spain. There was actually, it was commonly believed he was Spanish by a lot of people yeah. because he uses Spanish terms in his, in his masterwork to collect an air. And he had written a first draft of that, essentially, a handwritten version that's in the Escorial Library that is, is, is entirely in Spanish. So you, you have to be pretty connection. comfortable in a language to write the first draft of your new book in it. You certainly would. You certainly would. And he also brings Spanish weapons such as the dardum or the dart, which is connected with the Geneta style of light cavalry fighting from Spain. And he writes about that, how to skirmish on horses and other things like that, which are quite Spanish in their approach. Okay, so we're talking... So active from 1470s onwards and famous from, should we say, mid-1490s until, what, he died about 1510, wasn't it? 1509, died in 1509. battle. Right, of course, how else? How else is it about to go? How else? He, he, um, he, he died fighting as a, um, he was one of two Venetian captains or constables who were appointed as professional captains under mm-hmm. in the Battle of Agnadello when... Um, the Venetian rearguard, maybe about 4,000 mostly infantry, met the full French army of about 9,000 troops, and they fought all day, and um, Monty went down fighting. So he, wow. he, uh, this, we actually have some later, I'm not sure you call it eyewitness accounts, but we have some um, some description of like him from the battle even. Um, like So Monty's military career, he was a famous soldier in general. It's worth mentioning also he was a writer, he was a philosopher. He wrote um, probably five or six books that are known on everything from the temperaments, like, which is essentially Renaissance personality profiling coming yeah. from ancient Greece. Um, he wrote on ballistics. Apparently, he made observations about the nature of ballistic trajectories that predate Galileo by about 100 years. Wow. Um, there's, a, there's a really good paper on him. A lot of the information I'm getting on Monty's background comes from a French researcher called Pascal Briost, who I met at the Monty Symposium at the University of Tours back in 2018. Um, and he's written a book, or a, sorry, a short publication in Acta Periodica Julatorum on contextualizing Monty's military experience. It's 11 pages, but it's an amazing amount of depth to sort of put the man in his context as a famous general, war leader, tactician from his, from his era. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. I, I, I have one quote I really want to really want to drop on you here. It's um, it's basically about the Battle of Agnadello. It's from a Venetian source. It talks about seeing a squadron of heavy cavalry come through our poor come at our poor infantry, and in order not to abandon them, I brought them help with my four hundred men, 
at arms. And Lord Pietro Del Monte told me, Lord Bartolomeo, it is time to despise debt to obtain victory. That's so, so a good line. Committing to the fight. Um, and there's a last um, quote from uh, Degli Agostini describing Pietro Monte um, in this battle. He says, but the good and brave Pietro Monte did so many deeds that the fact that he and his men were killed is very beautiful. And he was covered right. in blood, killing on the battlefield to his left and to his right side. Or at times, like a furious wind that knocks down the plants and trees of his plague. Um, I actually think that translation should be flail, but he, trans he slaughtered the people in this war, wounded, smashed, brought down, spurned, and killed his enemies. So it's like ancient yeah. Irish myth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like uh, the stories of the berserkers. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, well, so he was cool definitely... You, what, what's cool about that is in Monty's description of how to fight with a two-handed sword, he talks about moving the sword like a wheel, continuously yeah. in motion. And I can see him doing his transverse cuts left and right as he fights, covered in blood. It's sort of there's a there's a sense of the techniques described in the collectinia coming to life in the eyewitness, or well, eyewitness, uh, or at least surely, handed down account. He he must have been on horseback, and he'd have been using a single-handed sword, I would imagine. Well, um, he's he's uh, he's otherwise described as one of the premier infantry of. Um, of Italy. Okay. So it's not certain he so was fighting he was a on foot with a two-hander. I, I, it doesn't say what weapon he has, but the two weapons okay. Monty teaches as base weapons are the poleaxe, which is the basis yeah. for all long weapons, and the yeah. two-handed sword, which is short weapons. So I think as a commander, he's more likely to have the sword, but I yeah. can't say. Possibly. Okay. Interesting. All right. There's lots we're going to go to do. Right? I've, I've taken some notes, so we're not going to lose anything. But, all right, let's, let's just have a talk about the translation and the book because you can be a great fighter and I'm willing to take it as read that Pietro Monte had his fighting chops, no question. But um, what is it about the book, the Exercitorum, that so, you know, that works for you? Tell us about the book. There's so much in the book and it's, it's more than a fight book. Like it's 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 a melange of philosophy, a lot of the temperaments, training, um, physical exercise, combat, a compendium of detailed information descriptions of armor from the period, masses of stuff on horsemanship, stuff about jousting, really granular detail about where to point the lance and how to how to hold yourself on the saddle, how to tie yourself into the saddle when jousting. Um, it's just it's just this compendium of arms. Um, and also, it comes in three volumes. So the first volume, Monty describes as being principles. So there are some details. Second volume is kind of into the weeds. It's kind of, as a hematist, it's my, my, my favorite bit where he describes techniques in more detail. The third volume is a book on military strategy, and it's from the point of view of a general. So he's sort wow. of got a very wide gamut. For me personally, um, it just it explains so much about how fighting works because there's just so much text. Um, there's 173 odd chapters. Um, it's 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 about 90,000 words in 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 Latin, if I remember rightly. So it's a huge is that, amount. Of sorry, is that all three volumes, or is that? That's all three volumes. It, it, it's 90, one book words. in three volumes. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And where, you know, what I love, like Fiori is amazing, but Fiori is like, it's very much a picture book with some text, especially if you get to the Gezi. Ooh, oh, very, we can have discussions. There, there's very nice smack talk at the beginning uh, in the introduction, mm. but like there's a lot of puzzling I find in Fiori and you've got to look over it. There's really? a, a very coherent system, but he doesn't spell it out very much. It's oh, like it there's eight lines. Await the peasant's blow in a narrow stance with the left foot forward, and when he comes to strike, meet his sword about the middle and let it run off and step to the step out of the way with your left foot and pass across and strike him in the head or the chest as you see. Just for example, and there's a picture of the crossing and of the running off and of the strike afterwards. It's yeah, in the copy of the beautifully illustrated. And and he does in the getting give us like eight lines. He, he does, but he does that for pretty much everything. I mean, he 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 tells us an awful lot. I mean, there are a few mysteries. Like no one really knows what the three turns of the sword are because he doesn't use. He he says, and thus I say, there are three turns of the sword. But he doesn't actually say what those turns are, and he doesn't actually use the expression "turn of the sword" anywhere else, right? But I mean, the introduction, it's. It's pretty comprehensive. Like it has, for example, the uh, eight principles of wrestling, mm-hmm. and and he describes the fundamental idea behind how to train, and what kind of material he's trying to teach you. And yeah, I I I, I do I do get that it it doesn't go into lots of theoretical detail, um, and it's not it's not a book of martial philosophy by any stretch of the imagination but it is a thoroughly practical how-to guide if you just read it, that it, way. it it's very how-to let me illustrate what i have in mind of what extra okay. there is if you if you take like a source i know you're very familiar with vadi there's yeah. fabulous stuff in vadi about how you move what happens at the crossing of the sword at the mezzospada and how you move yeah. and how you faint and how you play, how the whole play sort of flows and translates. Yeah. But he Fiori, bangs on about it at length. Yeah. 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 And Fiori, you kind of look at it and you figure it out. And but I would say there's quite a lot of interpretations of Fiori out there because yeah. people can see their own shapes in the clouds and you can read, I agree, very specific and very practical text, but I'd be curious how many, how many words there are in the flower of battle. Like if you were to count them up compared to something like the Collectinea. Now a lot of Collectinea is completely random for for a lot of people. Like how to use the temperaments to determine the quality of a horse, for instance, by looking at the shape right. of the, the formation of the limbs. Really interesting to someone choosing mounts for combat, I'm sure. But yeah, kind of out of my ballpark. But there is a lot of sort of interesting philosophy of combat about how you move with the sword, what kind of footwork you use. Uh, where you want lightness, okay. where you want to move fast, how you keep your balance, um, stuff that connects with how you fight in armor, I feel a lot. A lot of Monty's about being very upright, being above yourself is how he describes yeah. it, like your, your torso above your legs. Like in the Historical Combat Academy, we sort of have a, a saying, get over yourself. <laughs> Reinforce All right, which, which, which Fiore describes in a single picture of an elephant with a tower on its back. Right, which is which okay. is... Immediately concise if you've studied his system, but yes. you know you could read lots of things into that. Like I need to be bulky, or I need to have right. a long nose. Or I, need, or I need to eat a lot of grass. Right <laughs> there, you go. <laughs> um, um, so I'm I'm totally not dissing Fury. Fury is like has been my home system along with Gigante before before I got into okay. Monty, 
and it's it's formed the basis for my understanding of two handed swords, and I love Fury to death. Um, I say that there's an extra layer of detail in Monte. Uh, there is, mm-hmm. ironically, some very annoying lack of detail and lack of clarity. Like Monte, uniquely amongst the sources I know, never mentions like which edge of the sword you're supposed to use. Like the the true edge and false edge never comes up. It's maddening. Okay, 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 okay. Here's the thing. It's my belief that if you're moving properly, the edge you use is obvious. Mm. Right? Like, you can't do a, a Zverakow as described using your true edge from the right in any kind of normal sense. It would be a really weird thing to do. So it's mm. natural to use the false edge. And it says it is the false edge in the text, or well, the short edge, because it's German. So right. that's helpful. And Fiore, he just says that um, the Mezzano goes true edge from the right, false edge from the left. But he doesn't say strike the Fendente with the true edge because it's just bloody obvious. Right. Right. Um, and if you're, he says the Satani um, end in longer. And if you're striking from a low guard to post longer, it has to be the false edge. You can't do it with the true edge or you don't end up in post longer. That's right? true. Now, Vadi, he says that all blows from the right want the true edge and from the left want the false edge, except for the Fendente, which wants the true edge, right? Yes. So he, he just says clear. it. <laughs> right. But, it, but, but then there are exceptions. Right. Right. So, like, like for some, some of our rotter blows, you, you can do those with the false edge and it's perfect mm-hmm. from the right and it's perfectly normal. And, so, you know, it's... It's almost like we as researchers are fixating on details that anyone who's just spent enough time swinging a sword around doesn't need to be told because it's just obvious, right? But we haven't grown up swinging swords around, so we don't have that background knowledge that they expect. But I can kind of sympathize with Monte not spelling out, well, you hold the sword by the (laughs) blunt end and you hit the person mostly with the pointy end. I mean, like, why would he? Yeah, some things are obvious. Some things are very much open to interpretation. I've seen quite a few different interpretations of how Monty does some basic fundamental techniques or even what his fundamental techniques are. Um, and yeah, we, we figured out, you know, our version of how it makes sense. Um, so, I guess I'm looking for confirmation. I'm looking for another data point to go, I'd feel more secure in this. Um, but, you know, we, we have an interpretation that makes sense. There's a whole lot of very fluid motions with the sword that have a kind of a, a tactical logic to them. Um, but, you know, it would be nice if you ever mentioned the word false. Just, 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 you know, <laughs> it would. just to and, give us a clue. And Italians before him did and Italians after him did. All of the time, yeah. So it does the beg the question why he didn't. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's just an odd omission. It's the oddest omission for me. Yeah. But that's the nature ah. of translation and interpretation. You know, you're you're yeah. you're figuring things out, and um, and you know, you kind of you have to work through it. It's 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 very hard to start with, with with an interpretation and then end up with the same interpretation having worked with the source for a year. In fact, it's probably yeah. quite dodgy to do so. Yeah, I, I forget who said this. I read this recently. Um, Trust people who have consistent principles, but don't trust people who have consistent facts. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, that's, that's a good kind of, you know, yeah. yeah. Have principles, yes, but, but if, if your facts don't change, you're not learning anything. 
Yeah, it's like strong beliefs loosely held. Right, there you go. Um, okay, so, so you're translate. I mean, presumably your Latin must be reasonably good. Um, it's not bad now. It was pretty much non-existent when I started, which was... Excellent. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Listeners, hear this. Mike didn't know any Latin. Mike fell in love with a book written in Latin. Mike learned Latin to read the book. Learn from Mike. <laughs> this is how it should be done. I'm the same with Italian. Right. So I got to say, I stalled for a long time. I was interested in Pietro Monte. And also mm-hmm. even the description Sidney Anglo gave of his fighting style matched how my kind of way of fighting. He mentioned like he uses feints a lot, misdirection. Yeah. Um, and that's something I hold on to. It's something Giganti very much speaks of too as well. So, you know, from 2001 to 2013, he was like sitting on my ass waiting for someone to translate it. Because first Sidney Anglo was touted as going to translate it. Yeah. And then there was a rumor that um, uh, somebody else, Toby Capwell, I think, or or somebody, Maybe. I wasn't sure. Well, if I know. Was, or you mentioned Jeffrey, somebody. Jeffrey Fogging did translate it. Eventually. Eventually, eventually. yeah. Um, I think I, I heard a rumor, or maybe Toby Capwell mentioned something online that something about translation might be underway. I even emailed him on it, but I didn't get any clarity on who, who was doing it. And finally, I decided, look, I don't speak any Latin. But chatting it over with my brother, John, actually, who's quite a proficient rapier fencer, like, and who actually got me involved in fencing in the first place. He just, you know, just work with somebody, which is the obvious, duh, way of duh. approaching it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, to a friend of a friend, I managed to meet Ingrid, who was actually a guest at my house because she's a friend of my, my then housemate's wife. And she was over working on medieval Latin um, texts in with Trinity College Dublin. And we oh, got wow. talking. And, and I said, hey, I've got this book. And um, I actually just, I was really interested. There was this one section, Monte, on fighting with large shields, which is not commonly dealt with in Italy, at least yeah. until you get Rotella in the later century. So she just like translated this chapter with me. I was like, wow. And she, she thought it was fun. And I was like, fantastic. I finally got some of Monte. And we kind of discussed it and we agreed. She was kind of had a kind of a gap period between one or two academic projects. So we agreed an arrangement where she would work on the translation. We Skyped once a week for about an hour to go over the chunks that she'd worked on because she was you know, the Latinist. I was the practitioner who could sort of help tra- interpret what's ah, making sense. Okay, that's a good working relationship. So, you know, she would say things like, oh, he says something like, Twice with the right hand and once with the left hand. I don't get it. I'm going, ah, oh, but that's a that's a manu dexter and a yeah. manu reverso. That's like that's a right handed blow a f- and a left handed blow. Or it's a, a forehand and a backhand. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. It's just like f- from context from other Italian sources, you yeah. know what that means. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was really fruitful and and you know, it was kind of challenging. And those whole chunks we left out, you know, we'll come back to this, it makes no sense. Or subject object you know, who's doing what to whom, sentences that run on for entire paragraphs. Monty's really fond of commas. Daniel Jacke actually said to me at that Monty symposium he organized in 2018 that, like, Monty is impossible to translate. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, think, I think he felt as, as to get an accurate, you know, verifiable academic translation, he felt it was kind of more than he wanted to bite off. Um, fortunately, I didn't know yeah. any of that, and I wanted a practical, as accurate to the language as possible translation, and I just I plowed ahead. 
Yeah, many things are possible if you don't care how long it takes. Right, right. Wow, okay. So is it complete, your translation now? It's uh, very complete now. Um, it is, um, I've got, I've, I've done the last reading over, I'm making a few notes here and there, but I'm ready to send it to some test readers just to kind of get some feedback and, you mm-hmm. know, th- does it make sense for them? So some people who are, you know, experienced hematists, some people who are like, newbies because you know the book is not just for experts um if you're interested i'd be very happy to send you a, like a world exclusive send you a current text yeah like please do yeah be and, awesome. and 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 listeners listening he was talking to me not to you so <laughs> i'm gonna get it before you do so i can go in there and then there i've got monte i can read monte <laughs> uh, but I would, I would i would very much appreciate frank feedback as well <laughs> uh, i don't give any other kind that's that um, the only kind of that's useful. Yeah, thank you. The, the, the only friends I actually want are those who can take honestly meant criticism on the chin. <laughs> so, um, brilliant. So, is it is is any part of the draft available in any form at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got the first draft that uh, we pu- I published back in twenty eighteen. Uh, mm-hmm. which is on, basically, it's uh, mikeprendergast.ie mm-hmm. uh, forward slash Monty. Okay, and I'll put that link in the show notes, of course. Perfect, perfect. Okay. So there's a link there. If you, if, you, if you basically drop your email address in, it will like send you a link to, you can download the PDF. Perfect. Okay, so, 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 so people who want to get into Monte can do that. And, and it's mostly, from, from a sword fighting perspective, it's mostly two-handed sword. So Monty's got about uh, 18 different weapon forms, okay. but the bulk of his teaching is actually wrestling, first of all, because he says wrestling Good is the man. foundation of the art. It's how, it's how you learn to move. Yep. Yes, yeah, yeah. that's an Italian precedent we have there. Um, basically, how you walk in arms should be how you in, walk in the palestra, the wrestling ground. And wrestling teaches right. the lightness of movement and speed and balance at, like nothing yeah. else can. Um, so it's amazing wrestling. Then it's two other weapons. It's the poleaxe. Monty's poleaxe is larger than average. It's as high as you can reach, plus a little higher. Bloody hell, it's more of a bill or a halberd. Well, that's the point, because the poleaxe works for the Protozan, the Ronca, the Albarda, the Spatum, and right. this also is basis for the staff and for the spear. So what word is he using for poleaxe? Uh, what is he using for poleaxe? What it's called no, what word? Oh, oh he, uh, well, Monty's not one to restrict himself to a single word for anything, guy. Uh, so <laughs> okay. It's, it's it's an atza, it's a tripuncta, it's a tricuspis. Okay. So, so tripuncta so, would be a trident. It would be if the points were all pointing in the same direction. Oh, However, but they're going in. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right, okay. right, right. So it, it's yeah. kind of a bit of a fuzzy word because obviously one of the points is a hammer. Uh, the reverse <laughs> yeah. point is a spike. There's a top point, and actually, there's a fourth point because the contus or calx, which is to say heel yeah. or spur at the bottom, is pointed also. And that which Fury would another. call the pedale or the foot. Right, yeah. right. So, okay. yeah. So the word is calx, which can kind of imply a spur. It's the word for heel in in Latin. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's so so there's a lot of pole weapon, which is great because where there's very there's I can't think of another system where. Maybe there's a German system too, but I don't know of any system where the pole weapon is kind of the primary weapon. And then uh, the sword. Well, je de la hache. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's just pure yeah. polax. Because it's pure polax, yeah. How, how could I forget the je de la hache? Um, 
But um, but yeah, so there's then there's the two-handed sword, which is the basis for all short weapons. So it's worth understanding that the short weapon is the sword that comes to your nose or your eyes, right. or less, or lower. And so single sword works like so it's it's a system for a single sword and for two-handed sword. They're the primary single weapons. He has other advice and chapters on the dagger. Something called the mukro, which mukro just means blade. Fury's um the the version of Fury in the Bibliothèque Nationale, they call the sword a mukro. But a mukro is variously des- described as being only having a point, like a nest dock. Yeah. And se- and separately as a a, a a tool for slicing your meat. So Okay. So I'm not sure uh. it means anything more than generically a blade in, in Monty's system. He has some advice on the Warhammer, which is fun. Okay. There's that, which is used exclusively on horseback. You you batter people with it repeatedly. It's best to carry two rather than have okay. one. Um, and and the S-Doc. But really his his like his small weapons are the two handed sword and the one handed sword with a variety of like five different shields which are mentioned. Okay, so from our perspective, the two handed sword is a very big sword. It comes up to sort of, it's like five feet long or something like that. Yeah, right. yeah. Monty's, okay. Monty's would be as long or longer, yeah. What this reminds me of, really, is the way soldiers talk about guns, mm-hmm. right? The standard infantry weapon is a rifle. The pistol mm-hmm. is something you carry as a backup. But if you ever actually have to shoot somebody with a pistol, something has probably gone wrong, mm-hmm. right? Because the gun is the rifle, and like the the sword, as we think of a sword carried on the waist, as you know, as part of your accoutrements, as you're wandering around town with your hands free with a sword carried mm-hmm. at the waist, it has the same sort of place, I think, as a pistol. Yeah, a sidearm. Right? Yeah, it is a sidearm. It's not. The main event, and if, but if you're wandering around with a rifle or with a two-handed sword or with a poleaxe, that's you are properly armed for actually going around killing people. A hundred percent. That that's actually exactly the way I organized that those thoughts as well. And okay. Monty's a military teacher. Then he's teaching the military weapons, the battlefield right. weapons first, and then the other weapons come off of that. Huh. Okay. So I I do have to ask. Who is Temperantia? So Temperantia has been my main training partner for the past year. As that we've been she's she's very time. beautiful. She's quite elegant. You can see her here in her slender <laughs> Italian looks. Um, <laughs> so so Temperantia, temperance or moderation is Monty's kind of main principle for fighting, about keeping right. in balance, being over yourself. Um, so when I wanted to get a sword made to replicate the description that Monty gives us as much as possible, I thought Temperantia was the natural name. So Temperantia is 1.7 meters long. She has a, quite a large handle and, and quillins at about 40, 42 cm, and was made by me, for me, by Chris Adams of Balefire Blades, who is like definitely my favorite blade maker. It's mm-hmm. it, I he did a custom job on it for me last year, and it was based a lot on on a on some Italian swords that are still surviving that. You can get some large Italian swords that don't have parrying hooks and don't have rings, because those are not yeah. things that Monty describes. Uh, there's a particular sword in um, the Bardini Museum in Florence that an Italian guy called uh, Niccolo 
uh, oh, I forgot his name. Mins, Mins, I'm, my apologies, Nicola. Nicola Minolsi, I would say, okay. who runs the Badone project on Facebook. He's made yeah. a detailed study of Italian large two-handers. So yeah, so this sword is what Monty describes. It comes to your eyes or, or nose. Um, it's got wide quillens to protect your arms. Um, it's reasonably light. It's about 2.4 kilos, which is about the same as the Bardini Museum sword. Um, the handle is long, the pommel is small. So Monty's not a fan of heavy weapons with large pommels that, as a counterweight because it slows you down. He wants a longer handle and a lighter pommel. So it's the leverage is doing the work for you. So he's very particular about maneuverable weapons that you can then you know, move in a wheel like manner with, as he describes right. in the system. Um, but yeah, okay, it's been so, fantastic to, to train with. So I kind of feel <laughs> like using the right weapon at last, you know? Yeah, yeah. okay. And and we will be putting photographs of Temperantia into the show notes because, uh, yeah, Excellent. she's very pretty. She is. Yes, and, and next time I'm in Ireland, I'd like to have a go, please. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, okay, the problem with really long swords is... It's not that they're hard to control, but the way you're supposed to use them does not imply stopping the weapon before you hit somebody. It implies uh -huh. smashing it through their skull and out the other side. So right. how do you train safely with a sword like that? Okay, so some of this is practical and some of this is theoretical. Got so it. practically, we, you know, in Ireland, we had quite severe lockdowns and we only really got back to training a bit sort of in the, in the autumn. Uh, or late late summer for a while, and I haven't actually struck a human being with Temperantia yet. I've been, <gasps> oh, I've but you've got to. She's thirsty. I, I know she is. She is. <laughs> um, so, but you know, I, I I commissioned Chris to get me sword as light and as well balanced as possible, consistent with you know, it's holding up to to sparring. Yeah. It's got a it's got a spatulated tip. Uh, I particularly wanted Chris to work in it because he's really good at making sparring weapons as well as works of art and metal. Um, so it's got really nice flex. So I think the answer is put on lots of pads and do it carefully. I know um, like Nicolo uh, Minozzi in Italy has put up some nice videos. We've chatted about sparring with Montantes and um, mm -hmm. Spadones. Um, and they have done some, and I've seen some video, and they, you know, the reports are if you do it carefully with control, it's not a tournament weapon by any shape or of the imagination. Yeah. Uh, but I think with friendly play and probably slow play, so myself and my friend Phil is quite interested, are, are going to have a go, I think, before too long when we kind of get the pads on and uh, go at it slowly. Uh, I, I would, you, yeah. sorry, I would think full play armor would be probably full the best way to go. Full play armor would go at it fully, actually, yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you had like bohart level eye protection, you know, a grill yeah. or whatever, you and could even trust. Because if you're in full plate, I mean, the weapon is not that heavy, and particularly at the tip of the sword, it's not that heavy. No. And so it's not going to crush the armor like a Polax might. It might no. actually, I mean, you still run significant risk of like broken fingers or, you know, maybe a bit of concussion if you don't, if you, know, if you take too many hits to the head. But I think, yeah, I think I would probably want full harness for to add a sort of free play i have a I, I believe that's probably the historically correct way of doing it um i also believe i have a long-term plan medium-term plan at least of getting harness made i'm working on just sorting out the soft garments to, to fit correctly underneath because i do want to i 
there's so much in Monty about finding a harness that's that's right. explained it's quite different as well so i want to get into that but for the meantime we're going to do some experiments with lots of padding slow work experiments so um we'll see what we can do i'm, I'm looking forward to the experiment but we're treating it as an experiment not as a contest okay you you've you've done a lot of solo training with the lovely temperance okay and mm -hmm. so presumably you've worked out like forms and drills based on your research into monte right okay right. i have a question if you say no to this question i will edit out Sure. Like I just said. Um, so feel free to ask however you like. Um, for my solo training course, would you be interested in videoing some um, some of your Monte forms, if you like, um, for me to put into the solo training course for my people who are doing that? Yeah, it sounds like a great way to put to to share it and even get feedback, hopefully, on how people find right. the forms and how it works for them. And also to like maybe help get something of a market for your translation when it gets published. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really? Okay. Even on, on a, like a, a more local level, we've been doing, as we're currently not in training till February, because there's just a lot of COVID stuff happening in Ireland at the moment. Um, one of my students, Lisa, has organized a um, training challenge. In fact, I think you, I know you may have met Lisa when you were doing a workshop in the West of Ireland. I'm not sure if she was there, but um, I found that training challenges are a great way to be active when you're solo training. I've, I've done yeah. like 10 times more training when I was logging it and reporting on a WhatsApp group every day than the uh, okay. devices. That's funny. I, I can't work like that I because I find challenges just like annoying and I, it doesn't work for me. What does work for me is um, I run, I, I was, well, basically what happened was in, like, I think it was end of May, beginning of June 2020, I got up to do my usual sort of morning training thing and I literally no exaggeration I did two squats and one push up and then what fuck it that'll do right? <laughs> and, and I was like this is not this is not going in a good direction so uh -huh. what I need to to motivate me the way you know, training challenges work for other people I need students right uh -huh. it's students that bring out the best in me absolutely mm -hmm. so I started my train along morning sessions so Monday Wednesday Friday 8.30 to 9.30 I have to be there because students will show up on over right. Zoom. And mm -hmm. because the students are there, I have to do it properly. Mm -hmm. And right. I have to set a good, you know, and, and basically it takes all the self-discipline out of it. I don't need, cool. it doesn't require any self-discipline and I can't cancel it or switch it or change it because, right. because I have students showing up. Right. And the only ones I've missed have been because I was either going up to Scotland to see my parents or I was going to Finland to teach a seminar. So when, when I'm not right. actually home, um, I don't think I've even, I mean, I've certainly done ones when I'd, I've had an injury or something and I would explain to the class, look, okay, I have injured my shoulder, so I'm not going to be doing this, this and this. By all means, put in that stuff if you want. But right. so even when I've had injuries, it would have been a perfect excuse not to do any training. I still show up and do something. Uh huh. Right. right. It's, it has probably saved my life. Because <laughs> otherwise I would be. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be. I would be completely spherical and unable to lift a sword. <laughs> but um, well, my experience is maybe more similar than you realize because the okay. last previous two training challenges, I set up the challenge, so I was kind of leading the charge. Ah, so I kind of like oh, perfect. Got yeah. I've got to do it. So uh, for 12 weeks from, I think, last year now, from about January to Easter, 
I put in an average of one hour a day training for 12 weeks, which That's is good. my most consistent training ever in my life, you know, like, yeah. like, and no excuses. Like, you know, there was something happening. I don't think I missed a day, you know? So, so, mm-hmm. and that was because I had about a dozen to 20 people who were also logging stuff. And it was a common feeling. And even though we weren't in the same place, we're sometimes sharing videos, what we did and we're chatting yeah. about it. And it sort of feels like there's a, yeah, a public commitment is amazingly powerful. And I'm someone who I'm sure. often like, I like to do my own thing. I don't want to be told what to do. But if I decide to make the commitment, then I'm holding myself to it. And it's kind of, Absolutely. it does it does help a lot. Uh, but to get back to, um, we were we were talking about something, I'm sure, before we mentioned training challenges. And it was solo training with Temperantia. Um, so, yeah, I've even been asked like by one of my students recently to go over. I've taught this many places, but every time I... I've been asked to do a video and I'm just revising my interpretation one more time with the final translation. So I'm putting together a video already planning to this week or the next week to just like get my current interpretation and sort of add some nuances and alternatives. So, so yeah, it's a really timely talk because that's, it's something I'm, I'm really working on. Excellent. At the moment. That, cause, and, and that would be great because it's, it's one, one way that if you're, um, you kind of your motivation is flagging, I mean, particularly with lockdowns and can't travel and mm-hmm. classes being cancelled and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, doing the thing you always do right. can get tedious and simply mm-hmm. just picking up something else and doing something a bit different, like maybe if mm-hmm. you're a rapier person, have a go at longsword, or maybe if you're a small sword person, have a go at rapier or saber or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just, so I'm... I'm I'm always trying to find other things for my students to do that will kind of keep them stimulated and interested, but they're not constrained to what I can do. Right, right. I, I, have, I, have, right. I have pretty reasonable breadth. You know, I can do... So there's like quite a lot you can do. I, I know this yeah. guy. <laughs> um, but, but, um, but there's an awful lot of stuff I don't. So it would be, be great to get some, some Monte into the mix. And, you know, yeah, of course, I'll be... Awesome. Uh, uh, and of course, if it's on my course, I have to also do it. And so I, because my students will probably ask me questions about it. Right. Like, I don't know. I've never, I can't <laughs> say that. I say, well, I was struggling with that very same thing. And so I rang up Mike and Mike explained it very patiently. And, and so now I think I get it. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that would be great. And I, I think I'm looking forward to kind of getting Monty more out there and, Getting yeah. people to come back, even contradict my interpretations, give me another Absolutely. opinion, see what they, you know, because I think it, it needs that to kind of test it and fire a little and make sure, you know, it's 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 credible and it's like, because you know, there's so much explained, but there's always so much open to interpretation. So just having other right. minds involved and people active would be fantastic. And and you know, until you until you publish, you can't get qualified feedback. Really, right? I mean, it's really hard to get qualified feedback until you publish because. Um, getting qualified pe- feedback for like an editing pass or something is either very expensive or just simply impossible or right. you, know, you run out you run out of friends credits as it were <laughs> right um, but but as soon as you actually publish it and someone who's interested in the topic buys the book then they have a kind of um that they'll look at it with a kind of depth of critical interest and detachment that mm-hmm. that your friend won't have. Right. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you know, there are people out there who do, um, obviously yourself, who do historical 
Italian martial arts, um, who I really mm-hmm. respect the opinions of. And I know there's other people who've actually delved into Monte. I know Greg Mele in Chicago has published some sure. of Monte. He's, he's played with them. Um, Roberto Gotti um, interprets yeah. Monte for the 200 sword. And I've seen even there's a really cool book, um, which I've just got, the Anonimo Ricardiano translation. Oh, yeah. From from Florence, from 1550 by by Davis, and that that's so that who, who translated it? So um, I am Davis. I'm not familiar with the order, but um, okay. I'm going to um, find out more about him because it's a fantastic translation of a source I hadn't even heard about before before it came out. Right. But he kind of references Monty as sort of as being a more similar source to this this system than you know okay than some others so but i also see out there you know there's a lot of kind of lacking information on monty which for which is mostly my responsibility for not putting more stuff out sooner i think there's ideas about what the levata is which is monty's basic training technique for weapons um and there's different interpretations of how his blows work and so forth so um, which is all fantastic and it's awesome that there's interest out there so i'm kind of looking forward to putting out more stuff and getting involved in that wider conversation more as well yeah, and and ideally getting getting people to really kind of rip it to bits. Yeah, and, and, and actually, you know, try try it out. I mean, it's it's four yeah. larger swords, but it's it's very applicable to longsword fencing. It just it you have to do good body mechanics when you're working with a larger weapon, but it also yeah. works with you know. And for many people, a standard X standard tournament fetter. You know, for many people, it's sort of like almost Monty Lent. Anyway. It's not a bloody long sword. I, those tournament feathers, they drive me nuts. I can't stand those things. Um, <laughs> okay. Aesthetically, I, I oh. tend to agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's not go there, because I'll, 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 I'll right. make enemies and get cross. <laughs> rant, rant, rant avoided. <laughs> rant avoided, yes. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Now, while I was doing some research for this interview... Um, I know you list strategic coach in your bio. Uh-huh. Um, what is that? So that how comes does it relate from, to swords? That comes from a lot of background. And I've actually said more recently, I've kind of morphed towards sports performance coaching because it's something okay. I've, I've trained in over their lockdown time. So mm-hmm. um, when I began to learn fencing first, um, one thing that helped me a lot was I'd done training in this discipline called NLP. Neuro linguistic yeah. programming, which is basically yeah. the study of the kind of internal experience of people when they're doing something. So, a classical approach, you know, to human performance would be to look to, to maybe video someone's move and form or their golf swing and break down, you know, the biomechanics of the movement. Um, but it's very hard to teach a human being biomechanics because we don't think in terms of leverages and angles. We we just you know, no. we, what's going on in the inside is often more interesting and to. So back in, the, I guess, the 70s, there was a computer programmer called Richard Bandler and a kind of a, a linguist called um, John Grinder, who came up with this idea of NLP as a way of kind of breaking down the internal experience of really high performers. Initially, they looked at people who were doing um, counseling, psycho- like coaching, hypnotism, um, but it doesn't need to be applied to that. So I think the, the equivalent, there's a story that um, John Bandler, or Richard Bandler, pardon me, talked about, um, I guess, Arnold Palmer, or about swinging a golf club, that when he was modeling how he did it, he would observe the action, but then he just noticed some things that weren't anything to do with the swing or the biomechanics. So there's a point where he was just about to tee off, and he paused, and it's like his eyes defocused, 
and then he swung. So when he asked him about this question, he said, I'm waiting. What are you, what are you, what are you stopping for there? I'm just waiting. And what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the course to become smaller. Huh. Now, like the golf course probably didn't really become smaller, but it no. did internally for the for the player. Yeah. So so NLP is kind of how I got into this coaching area or the the pathway I followed is about modeling the internal experiences that link to performance or link to success. Is is my explanation of it. You'll find as many explanations as there are people on the internet. Um so a lot of it is about using language or about picking up on people's cues and for better communication. But the thing that really interests me is about modeling success, modeling high performance. How do you, how can we get another angle on distinguishing what, what works really well from sort of everyday, everyday mm. activity? So, so I trained in LP back in the day. And more recently, I trained with Richard Bandler, who is a founder. It was, it was eye-opening. It was a lot of stuff dumped on me. Uh, but I'll give you one example of how it helped me when I began fencing. So there's, when you begin fencing, the problem you have is everybody is better than you. Yeah. And when you're trying to be successful, it can be a little disheartening. And it's like you're going out there and you get, you know, in, when you're doing competitive play, you just get, keep getting clocked and you're trying to keep your focus. And, you know, what am I learning and focus on that? But um, there's an NLP technique that whenever uh, called anchoring. So anchoring is when you, you build up a state and you, you maybe do something like touch your finger or you mm-hmm. you stand a particular way. It's like a Pavlovian response. You know, you sort of, if you if you do this enough times, when you associate with a certain feeling, especially if it's kind of an intense feeling, it can be like a button or a trigger for that. So yeah. whenever, when I trained NLP, I learned how to kind of create a solid, confident, you know, almost ecstatic state, anchor it. So then when I went to fence, I would trigger that just before fighting. And then when every time I I did something well, I won or I did a good move or I held off someone who was on the Northern Irish sports fencing team because we were fighting back with like files in those days, I swear. Um, I would trigger, I would would shoot the anchor, success anchor, every time I did something well. And then I kind of, it just enhanced my mood. So it's like a mood enhancer. So so that's just one example of how you can affect your mindset and by affect that mindset, you can put yourself in a more resourceful state to use the skills you have, to use the knowledge you have, to use everything that's on your side, but that for some inexplicable reason, we don't always we don't always access our best self. Sometimes we're kind of we show up, but we don't fully show up. So NLP for me is about getting in the inside of that. So so I found this fascinating, I found it useful, and it led me to train as a master practitioner and a coach, which is kind of can be applied to business coaching. Um and that led to the idea of strategic coaching. And for me, understanding life is very connected with swords and very connected with fencing, sure. right? Yeah. Because life is often fuzzy. Who wins and loses is a very matter of you know perception and what people, you know, how it's painted afterwards. But in a, in a fencing match, it's generally pretty clear who wins at the end or who yeah. did what. And if it didn't work, you have immediate feedback. You can go back and look what happened and what didn't happen. So I think fencing is a nice metaphor for life. It, it's much clearer than, say, business, where it depends on so yeah. many external factors. So, yeah. And in fencing, there's tactics where you're trying to win a particular fight and there's strategy where you're taking the long-term view. You know, mm-hmm. That beginning fencer, you're going to get dispirited because you lost every fight or you 
are you going to notice, look at it from a growth mindset where, okay, I lost that fight, but I held them off for longer, or I did three cool parries before I got nailed, or yep. like, are you taking the long-term view? And I feel that a lot of our, fa- our flaws as humans is we get this comfortable dopamine-addicted short-term satisfaction, and it can be almost like an addiction. And to get past that, we need to have like a longer-term view and to remind ourselves to detach, to step out and look at the longer-term view, whatever our goals are. You know, do we even have goals? Are we working towards those? Are what we're doing on a daily basis, like that regular podcasting or regular training or regular translation, is that building up to something that will serve us and we'll be satisfied with over time? So the strategic coach is the idea of taking the strategic view like the, to the horizon as opposed to like the short term, but then thinking, setting that goal, beginning with the end of mind and, and working towards it, um, which can be okay. very abstract, of course, but it can actually be a practical application of abstract thinking, because once you've set that goal, it sort of gives you a path to walk. And then you can yeah. kind of follow the milestones when you get there. And, and you can change your mind along the way. I and, mean, and, so you, pro- and you so probably as, should at times. Right? <laughs> yeah, but, but as long as you're moving in a good direction, it doesn't necessarily have to be the the most efficient direction for the goal that will appear later on absolutely and it's it's often most important to get movement um yes uh, well, it's like in wrestling right if your opponent's standing still you can't do anything but once, right. whilst they're moving you can throw them and throw them on the ground 100 percent, 100 percent. and then from that i i you know because obviously my thing is coaching and physical activity mm-hmm. and so, so i i i did um sports performing a sports performance coach level one course mm-hmm. with a guy called Anders Piper, who's um, runs like the society of NLP sports performance um, program. And he's worked with professional, particularly professional um, bicycle teams and so forth. So right. there's a lot of really good stuff about, you know, again, just enhanced applications of mental coaching to how to hit flow, how to, a lot of it though, and you'll connect with this is how to listen, how to actually just tease out from somebody and help them get to the point where they figure out what they're trying to do and what's stopping them. Yeah. That, that's, that's something. Okay. Like three things have popped up in my head while we've been, right. while I've been listening to you. First, um, is I did an interview with Lynette Nussbacher recently, mm-hmm. right. which was, a, and she's a strategic person she's a strategist L- Lynette's an old friend of mine uh, yeah yeah oh right okay so I imagine I imagine you two have have and I've actually long listened, conversations about strategy I've actually listened to the podcast it's a fast I, I hadn't I didn't have so much fasting deal about her, her military career before so it was really really interesting <laughs> yeah okay um and are you familiar with a book called the art of learning by Josh Waitzkin it's one of my favorite books yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know a bit about about building triggers, which is basically what you're talking about. So right. Right. You find that you find an environment in which doing sort of becoming your best, most sort of creative and engaged self is natural. Right. And then you, before you go into that environment that you know is going to generate that state, you create a sort of set of behaviours which act as triggers. Well, I guess you'd call right. them anchors. Right. right? And so. And then what you do is you is you minimize those triggers. So you, you start out with maybe a whole process of things which become associated with creating that state, but then you kind of bring it down to a like a maybe a single action that you can mm-hmm. do down quickly. Because if you need it quickly, you can just do that thing and you have Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And 
just as an aside from that, I was, I think it's one of Dave Lowry's descriptions of um, some of the Mikyo Buddhist rituals yes. in, by ninjutsu practitioners. There you go. Where right. they have, they associate specific hand positions yeah. Yeah. with specific mental states. And by creating those triggers, they can simply do the hand thing to enter that particular mental state. So yes, that's, that's, that's been going on for a very long time. In Sanskrit, they call them mudra. Mudra. Right. right. And I've, I've, I've never heard that published or discussed, but that's always been my understanding too, that a trigger, like you know, touching a certain part of your finger to get a success state, mm-hmm. it seems like you go into deep meditation and sort of a Buddhist tradition, and you meditate in this with this hand position. So then this hand position is associated, again, in a Pavlovian way with that state. So it kind of induces the state. It, again, a trigger. I'm, I'm convinced right. that's it. I've, I haven't really... You're the first person I've ever come across who's also made that connection. But, uh, <laughs> right, okay. Like, but I, I really well, think that's it. It was, it was um, Dave Lowry who, uh, who made it for me, really. Dave Lowry. He's Autumn written some fantastic books. Yeah, Autumn... Yeah. Um, yeah. Persimmon Wind. Yes. Autumn Lightning. I think it's in The Sword and the Brush. Cool. Um, I must reread that. I, I've read a bunch of his books. I didn't remember him picking up on that, but that's, that's a really great connection. I may be misremembering because it was a long time ago. Really. But it's one of those things where um, like the way I teach, let's say a student is having difficulty doing a, a good longsword strike. They're a right. bit stiff or clumsy or awkward or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I do is I create the environment such, give them the stimuli such that they, they start to move better for whatever reason. Give them the right visualization or mm-hmm. let's say they're cutting a bit short, I'll hold something out for them to cut out and that naturally right. makes them longer. And we don't talk about mechanics and we don't talk about right. like any, any specific technical thing. I don't tend to make specific technical corrections anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just... Okay. Change thing. I change things so that the person is doing the thing better than they were before. Right. 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 But then the thing is, how do you recreate that? So what I do is, once they're moving properly, I get them to describe the feeling of how they're now moving. Right. Nice. Uh-huh. In whatever language suits them, mm-hmm. pick a word that is associated. That, that, that for them accurately describes that move that that sense of moving that way of moving that mm-hmm. feeling of moving mm-hmm. right and it could be in any language and it and it may have make no sense to me at all why they would choose that word right. but for whatever reason in their head this word in that language means this feeling right right so then when i'm in class with them and they start to cr- cr- crunch crunch start you know moving badly again people will always revert to old habits, right? right? I could just drop that one word and immediately they're moving properly. Awesome. That's right? really going because, in deep. Yeah. Because it's, it, it's just, as long as I can remember the right word, that can be a trick sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and it's often a word I don't even know what language it's in. It's just a meaningless set of syllables, so it's hard for me to kind of remember it. But, gotcha. Um, sometimes I'll just ask them what their word is. And that will that by itself will do it because that awesome. will put the word in their head and then they'll go, oh yeah, it should feel like this. And as soon as they know how it should feel, mm-hmm. then 
And that feeling is you know, stable, supported, strong, powerful, balanced, graceful, mm-hmm. spreadsatura, whatever. All right, anything that makes more of that is by definition good. And anything that makes le- less of that is by definition bad. And what your opponent is trying to do is take it away from you completely by throwing right. it on the ground or stabbing you in the head or something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. So it can all be about simply maintaining that sense of graceful, powerful, flowing movement. Mm-hmm. That's a really great um, sense of rapport. To kind of you're kind of you're meeting the student in their own experience, and then right. understanding, and then inducing it. Yeah. Because yeah. and and the things that will work to make a student feel that change massively from student to student. So often, like if if I if I've not trained with them before, for the first half an hour or so of an hour-long private lesson, we're basically just figuring out what what environmental changes I need to make for them so that they will start to get that feeling. Uh-huh. And then and then when we get there, then we can just, you know, what helps it, what you know, what makes it better. Like, you know, tricks like yeah, having a, a full glass of water, hold a full glass of water by your belt as you move <laughs> around. Correct. And... Sure enough, if you're spilling water all over the place, it looks like you just wet yourself. You're probably not doing it. Right. <laughs> but again, again, but if, if the style we're talking about in, is is sort of jumpy, then that's not going to work. So that right, doesn't work right. for everything, but it right, works for right. many things. Hmm. Um, you know, you can't do a rapier lunge with a full glass of water at your belt without spilling it. At least hmm. you shouldn't. Challenging, right? for sure, for sure. Right. Yeah. So, so for a. a you know, for Fiori's sidesteps, it works beautifully. For Capoferro's lunge, we need something else. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's actually something I've really only realized in the past two years by doing this sports performance coaching and becoming aware of like the profiling tools that are kind of academically supported, like the lab profile or this University of Luxembourg Lux profile, where you look at, mm-hmm. you kind of talk to someone, you kind of figure out their motivations or how they approach life. And people are so incredibly different. And yeah. I realized I was kind of going around with blinkers on for most of my life and kind of imagining, well, everyone's really the same. And everyone's really interested in the same things. So I was like, no, they're not. No. Like, people are <laughs> really so not. diverse. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And and what people will defend to the death, just check. I mean, some people will defend their injuries to the death. Uh-huh. Right? The limitations. Right. Yeah. Or, I mean, let's say somebody is, has had an injured shoulder at some point. And actually, it's okay now, mm-hmm. but having that injured shoulder has become a, like a talisman for them in some sense. Mm-hmm. And they can't, and you notice it particularly when, um, when you, they, you start collecting lots and lots of things that you need because of that injury. Uh huh. Right? Like, let's say you have dietary restrictions or whatever, and sometimes it's absolutely the right thing to do to bring your own food to wherever you're going because right, it just right. makes life easier for everyone, okay? Yep. But when that becomes the default, you're holding on to your dietary problems, right? Because everywhere you go, you have to lug a car full of food with you. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I can kind of right? sympathize with that because I've made some very specific diet decisions. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure, sure. And, and, and again, I'm not criticizing anybody for that. And there are definitely times when... That's necessary, but it's also very often um, it becomes this uh, limiting factor on a, on a person on the things that the person can do, which isn't actually necessary from a medical perspective. It's become a psychological thing. 
Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I think people yeah. get um, they protect themselves when there's a need, and that you know, like everything, it can become a habit. That's exactly. uh, that's usefulness. Yeah. Yeah. I think Hema, and, well, sorry to keep using that offensive word, Guy. That's all right. No, no, it's fine. I'm used to it. <laughs> uh, but historical fencing, of whatever stripe you favor, um, a lot of it's about, you know, going into new places where you're not comfortable and learning new things yeah. and challenging yourself in different environments, you know? So I think that's it's, it's very much to do it well, you have to be have a, like a growth mindset and be able to push your boundaries, But right. which is just life. Right? It's not really just fencing, is it? Yeah, very true. And again, that's that's actually one of the one of the things that historical martial arts can do for people because swords are so attractive mm-hmm. to people Amen. like us that yeah that that people are willing to leave their comfort zone to reach the sword. Yes, you know, it's like it's like they're lying on the sofa eating chocolate and watching crappy TV, and you dangle a sword in front of them. <laughs> And as they reach for it, you just pull the sword slightly further away. Then they have to get off the sofa and, and the chocolate falls on the floor. And But that's okay. By, by this time, they're out of the house and running down the street, running after the sword. Right? It, yes. it has that kind of magical attractiveness. It, it certainly did for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think for most of the people listening, to be honest. Um, okay. Now, I have a couple of questions that I tend to uh, finish up on. And as someone who's listened to episodes of the show before you probably are you know what's coming well i also i sent you the questions ages ago so which, which you, you do know what's coming <laughs> uh, all right what is the best idea you haven't acted on um it's it's actually to put out i think more video work and maybe a a training course on the art of pietro monte uh, oh i know exactly how to do all of that yeah, apparently you do actually. I'm sorry. It's kind of right. We should. I, I would. I should pick your brain more. You were, actually. I should, should say for listeners, guy. You were very helpful. Allow me to pick your brain and just when I was approaching the book some years ago and just how to think about publishing yeah. to get a map of how to do it. So I do appreciate your help and input already. So thank you for that. Oh well, you're very welcome. Um, so so you need to put together something like um, well, like my syllabus wiki maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. Um, I think there's two aspects to it. I think it's something we've been talking about on the Hema Ireland Committee as well. Is about something we want to take from the lockdown experience is that you can do a lot of useful and interesting content in a video format. It's not the complete yeah. package, but especially for beginners or someone who want to find out about something or get into it, especially it can be really useful to have video and talk throughs. So I think I would. I'm working on like the syllabus and I've, I've put together quite a bit of syllabus for Polaxe and Two-Handed Sword especially, but as well, it's it's just to have video to kind of explain an interpretation, to show the movement, to show the flow, because that's very hard to translate into into words. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the problem we have. You know, if we had a video of Monte doing his sword stuff, your life would be a lot easier. It, it would be, yeah. Um, and the same is true for the students. So yeah, putting together a... Uh, I think really the trick is to start small, mm-hmm. right? If you think to yourself, I'm going to video every player in the whole of Monte and get it all in perfect 4K with makeup and lighting and everything. And, and blood effects, ah. of course. And blood effects, yeah, of course. It, it, it's, it's never going to happen. But if you like, oh, well, okay, I have this florist that I do think I'm going to video that and I'm going to sort of talk people through it a couple of times and then I'll just demonstrate it and then I'll just put that somewhere. I would suggest not YouTube. Okay, that's interesting, actually. Why yeah. not YouTube? Um, because 
the way YouTube works, um, people provide free content, which creates traffic, so that advertisers can target their advertising more effectively, so that YouTube makes money from the advertisers, and the advertisers make money from the stuff that they sell, and the people producing the content can make some money. And a few people on YouTube make a fortune from their advertising. But if you think, if you're getting, I don't know, 100,000 euros a year mm -hmm. from your advertising revenues on YouTube, YouTube will have taken a million, and the advertisers must have taken more than that, or the advertising budget wouldn't be there. Wow. Right? Yeah, that, so think, that, of it, that would... think of it like that. Right? Okay, yep. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 you know, my, I'm using Facebook ads at the moment, which I absolutely hate, but I'm not doing it myself. I have somebody else doing it. And uh -huh. I, I'm looking, at part of my justification for it is it's an outreach project to get people off Facebook and onto something like Swords, doing them properly. Right. Um, but, you know, I give money to Facebook to show my ads, mm -hmm. but those ads sell my books and courses, which right. makes much more money than I'm paying on the ads. Yep, yep. So I've, I've experienced it from the perspective of the advertiser, mm -hmm. right? So, so the problem with YouTube, in, to my head, in my head, is its business model. And likewise, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and so all these social media platforms have the same fundamental ethical problem. Mm. Um, and so, as a and as a user of those platforms, as a as a, as a you know. If you're the one producing free content for them, you're the one who's being taken massive advantage of. Yeah, right. it's almost like you're working for YouTube. Exactly. You are working for YouTube really, really hard, and they're giving you a tiny fraction of the money they make from it. Right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I have no idea is all portions were like that. Oh, it, I mean, just, just if you just think about it for a minute, they have to be like that. I mean, your advertising budget can't be much more than 40% of your turnover, mm -hmm. right? Assuming you've got overheads. So if you're giving YouTube a million dollars a year, you must be making, what, two, should we say, mm -hmm. just to make yeah. that easy, be niche. right? And of that million dollars that you're giving to YouTube, how much is going to the person putting the thing on? Pennies, tiny a tiny fraction, yeah, because YouTube keep the money. Well, why wouldn't they? It's their business. But, but yeah, it's it's actually worse than <laughs> book publishing, Dan, where you sell a book for twenty dollars yeah. and you get the author gets two dollars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, not if you're self-published. <laughs> yeah. No, I well, I sell a book for twenty dollars, I get about half of that, that's and yeah, and the rest goes to the printers and the distributors and what have you, and that's fair enough, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so my videos are all on Vimeo. I switched. <laughs> I I. I basically destroyed my YouTube channel right. and moved over to Vimeo because I pay Vimeo to host my videos for me. I am the customer. Okay. Right. Um, and my online courses. So I don't use Vimeo for, you can monetize your Vimeo videos, you know, pay for view or whatever, but I prefer teachable as a platform for online courses. And okay. the Good primary reason I use teachable is because um, I, I have access to all of the data. In other words, I am paying Teachable to host and organize and to provide a platform for me to run my courses on. And they take the money and they, they sort out the VAT for you know, cool. European Union VAT laws. They sort all yep. of that out. But, and 
they don't keep a commission. I I pay them a flat annual fee. Got you right. Yeah. And I and but all the money that I get paid for the course, apart from the VAT and there's a credit card, the credit card processing thing takes a percentage, mm-hmm. but that's it. Right. So I'm paying Teachable. I am the customer. Right. 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 To to that platform, and so. You know, when they pay me, I, 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 I'm getting my students. When my students buy a course, I get almost all of it. Yeah, yeah. So the, the creator is actually benefiting, not the middleman. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, but I mean, things are different if if it's supposed to feel. I mean, for my syllabus wiki, mm-hmm. one of the when I killed my YouTube channel, one of the more awkward things was uh, annoying things is I had to upload all of those videos to Vimeo and then go through the entire wiki and change all the YouTube links into Vimeo. Oh yeah. That sounds painful. It took a while. <laughs> and on my website, there's, you know, loads of YouTube links to mm-hmm. my YouTube videos, which, and some of them, I haven't caught all of them yet. I need to kind of, every now and then I come across one and I find the video on Vimeo and stick it into YouTube and uh, stick it into the blog post and what have you. Cool. So switching platforms is a pain. So I would suggest don't switch. Because then, then you see what you do is you use if you've posted your video on Vimeo and you want people to see it and it's free or right. whatever, yep. you then use the social media platforms to distribute that. Right. Right. So you know, post it on Facebook and share it on Twitter and share it on wherever else, Instagram or whatever, wherever you do. Um, cool. Now this this very timely conversation, guy, because I've tried with putting up a few videos on YouTube, but I haven't really like got a channel off the ground so it's, it's definitely strategic talk to have now before i plow down that road but, but then there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with deciding to use youtube's fantastic searchability and fantastic just you know enormous just simply gigantic um user base mm-hmm. for your own strategic purposes yeah yeah it's just I don't like their business model. I find their business model unethical fundamentally. Gotcha. And so yeah. I don't, so I don't, I don't partake of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's a judgment call and well, okay. I came across recently, um, this woman called, she calls herself Miss Excel. I've right? heard of her. Right. Yes. She has, she has the most fantastic attitude towards social media. Right, she has fantastically popular videos on TikTok and Instagram. She just mm-hmm. uses those two platforms, right? Okay. Where she basically, in a cheery and chatty manner, tells people how to do stuff with Excel, mm-hmm. right? which I have no interest in. When I, if, if something involves a spreadsheet, I generally pay somebody else to do it because I just don't right. want to go there. Right? right. But anyway, this is what she does, and millions of people have to use Excel for work. Yeah, yeah, it's a big user base. And, right, exactly. And most people are miserable with Excel because they don't know how to use it properly and they're very unhappy. Uh-huh. And so she makes these very cheerful, very charming sort of chatty videos and what have you. And she doesn't take advertising revenue from TikTok or from Instagram. Okay. What she does is she sells her online courses. She uses the Thinkific platform, not Teachable. And I would like to have a quiet word with her about why Teachable is better, but mm-hmm. that's, that's her business. And she's clearly right. very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, because she started in the middle of 2020 and um, within 12 months she had turned over several million dollars it's it's incredible yeah right. it's, it's phenomenal right. because she's not trying to make revenue like 
a tenth of a cent per view on her videos on TikTok. She's making revenue at, well, a million people have seen her TikTok video and a percentage of that go and buy the course for some hundreds of dollars. It's great in a way. It seems to be able to empower people to get their stuff out now in a way that right. before widespread internet, social media, just you know, it was in the hands of publishers or yeah. you know, rich um, corporations who could like control what was out there. So it is it is very freeing. I mean, it means there can be a lot of random stuff out there, but it also means if you're a creator and your motivation, this is your time more than I think absolutely. Previously. Yeah, and and I guess really the trick is just to think strategically about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, and, what's the end game? And who you're doing it with. Yeah. Um, hey, well, that was a gigantic di- digression where, where there was a guy banging on about, <laughs> about business models when I should be asking you questions. Okay, my last question. Um, if you had a million quid to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend the money? Yeah, I, I got this question advanced. I still don't know. My best thought on this is, it would be cool to have something like a bursary or a scholarship that would help organize basically a transfer of ideas between between historical groups in different areas to support, probably to support events that involved research recreation of historical martial arts. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of, there's a huge amount of things that work very well in historical fencing. I think you know, the tournament scene is really healthy. Um, yeah. the, the classic, the classic, you know, debate is, 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 is it all sports fencing now with different weapons or are we who really cares? doing martial arts? Um, yeah, but I mean, I think I mean, it's tournaments are useful. Yeah. Tournaments useful. useful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think HEMA is, is a very rich field and I'm, I'm thinking that it's the more kind of cross collaboration, cross fertilization between different groups with different ideas and different countries with different trainers and movement of people and teaching and training the more we will grow our whole our community and experience and the skill level within it. So I would probably propose something like a bursary where to organize trans like the support events, taking trainers from other areas and having them at their events to, to swap. Like um, in the academic world, we have programs like Leonardo or um, there's a couple of others, but where you basically Students or teachers can like go and teach another academic institution, like in, go from Ireland to Belgium or Germany to mm-hmm. Spain or whatever. Um, I also think it should probably be where the local group has to put up, has to front about 50% of the money to make sure they're behind it and it's a real thing. But I think some sort of HEMA cultural exchange program where you get no worthy teachers and people can, you know, it's, it's up to groups who do you want to come and teach. So I think. It's up to them to decide who the teachers are, but have a program where you basically have an exchange of teachers between groups and have spread knowledge and spread learning around. That's kind of, that's the best I can come up with right now. That's not a bad idea. I think a million dollars might not be enough. Um, and you don't have budget, budget. They're imaginary dollars anyway, so. Sure, budgets for HEMA events so are pretty low, pen. you know. <laughs> True. Yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, a lot of these people aren't getting paid, which makes everything yep. cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you're paying expenses and travel, you know, and remember the budget is $2 million because we're fronting a million dollars, but it's going to be matched by... Ah, uh, right. Okay. By local groups. Yeah, okay. Partake. So if I need $2,000 to run an event, I can get $1,000 of it from your fund. Right, right. If it matches the program or, yeah. That's not a bad idea. Huh. I think, yeah, if, if, if I had the money, I might give it to you. 
Like awesome. <laughs> Ask nicely, Mike. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you for that virtual, that, that potential promise of virtual money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been lovely catching up with you again, Mike. Thanks for yep. joining us today. It's been fun. It's nice to have the conversation, and I'm going to go back and do a dive into some of your previous conversations because I know there's a lot I still have to catch up on myself. So. Thank you. Thank for the, thanks for the chat. And I um, I will be back to you uh, with that video. And uh, we'll be in touch. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you were there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Harp, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Ariel Anderson. Ariel is a model, an actor, an author, a property investor, and is perhaps best known for her career as a BDSM model and performer. And yes, she's also mad about swords. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. (laughs) 